Welcome back to Recovering Church Girls. I'm your host, Tanya Adlita, and I have with me Amber Cortana. I am so excited for this conversation. Can I just say that to start with? Hi, Amber, by the way. Hello. <laughs> thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, and was something that I really want people to know straight away is that you are an author. I believe uh, I heard, saw a sometimes blogger. Uh, you're in the music field and have all sorts of things that you are doing. And I want to talk specifically about the books that you've written because I think that's going to open the door wide open into this conversation. Your current book is Unashamed and your previous book is Refocusing My Family. And I think for any of us that grew up in the church, we hear something that sounds really familiar about that idea. And hmm, that sounds like a prominent ministry that came out of Colorado and had a certain amount of attention given to the family. And it is. And it continues to be. <laughs> and clearly, if anybody didn't pick up on that, then uh, I'm not sure that we shared the same childhood, first of all. But secondly, I'm referencing focus on the family. Yes. I grew up there. My dad started working there when I was three years old and he continues to work there to this day. So he's been there for over 30 years and uh, it's, it certainly shaped a lot of my upbringing and my background for sure, mm. uh, in the Christian evangelical culture. Sure. I can imagine. And your current book, Unashamed, is specifically geared towards, I was going to say family members, not necessarily, but people that are guiding them coming out in their sexuality, but then also they're wrestling with their spirituality because a lot of them are coming out of the church and they're being cast out of the church and needing to find, you know, kind of where they belong again. Is that pretty accurate? It is. Yeah. I mean, refocusing my family was me telling my story, my coming out story as the gay daughter of a focus on the family executive. Um, and then I pretty quickly, as I started speaking and sharing my story publicly after the release of the book and, and touring, um, realized that this was not just my story. This is mm. a story of hundreds and thousands of people all over the world. Your dad doesn't have to work at Focus for this to be a story. <laughs> and, uh, you know, either you grew up listening to Adventures in Odyssey or your parents read James Dobson's books or you were homeschooled or you're a part of purity culture or, you know, all these threads that we- I'm like, or um, all of the above. all of the above, right, right. <laughs> that we hold in common and uh you could be a pastor's kid or a missionary kid or you, there's so many of these things that are overarching um but that we all share mm. and that make coming out such a challenge in our evangelical um conservative christian background and so unashamed is the first coming out guide for lgbt christians because uh, though we have a good number of resources now that we didn't even have when I was coming out 10 years ago, um, most of them all focus on being able to reconcile your faith with your sexuality mm. and kind of the theological standpoint of what the Bible says about same-sex relationships. Um, but we haven't had anything that is just a practical guide of like, okay, I'm gay and I'm Christian and now what? Like, what mm. am I going to do from here and how do I navigate that? And so um, I, I totally didn't anticipate writing another book so quickly after releasing Refocusing My Family, but it just was so obvious that it was so needed. And this starts with, it really takes a very holistic approach, um, but it starts by addressing things like internalized homophobia, 
Hmm. And where that comes from and where it stems from and that shame that takes root in our lives from such a young age and being able to recognize that and name it for what it is and how to dismantle that in hmm. order to be able to truly accept ourselves um, and really to, to reevaluate the lens that we view God through and therefore reevaluate the way that we see ourselves. Mm. well because we see ourselves through this you know so many people are still stuck in that world of god hates me and i'm going to hell for being gay and therefore they either um walk away from the church altogether or they become suicidal or they lose their family or any number of things Mm -hmm. Um, so we have to really change the lens of how we view faith in god in order to be able to change the lens of how we view ourselves and how we love ourselves i absolutely love that by really looking at those things first. Um, and then, you know, from there it travels into how do you know when you're ready to come out and, and, um, what if your parents are in, all all the most commonly asked questions that I get all the time, you know, what if your parents are in ministry? What if you're in ministry? What if, um, how do you set healthy boundaries? How do you grieve loss and rejection? What Mm -hmm. if you're out and your partner isn't, you know, all these questions, I just felt like were on repeat either through the messages that I got through people or the people that I met at my events. Uh, it was the same questions over and over and over and over, and there was no resource to point them to to help them. Hmm. And so this is um, is kind of my way of of um, gifting that to them and giving them just very practical approach of how to navigate those steps as they are leading up to the coming out, as they navigate the coming out process and post coming out, um, and also for parents and allies and friends. Um, at the end of every chapter, I have a section of how they can support their loved one through that specific part in their journey. And I think just reading it helps give them a glimpse into what that world is like Mm. and and how hard it can be. So it it really is a gift for everybody, you know, and I, and I've had a lot of straight allies that have related to it more than I anticipated, um, Mm. which has been really exciting and something I didn't anticipate seeing in, in this release, but it's been great to see how much, um, even through their own deconstruction, it's been helpful to have, practical tools around boundaries and grief and loss because they experience that to a degree as well many times. Sure. Yeah, that totally makes sense to me. And it's so funny that you mentioned that because as you were talking about the structure of the book and especially starting with this idea of the the role of identity that we each play in the process of, you know, what we've internalized and evaluating if that's something that we actually believe mm-hmm. or if it's something that may have harmed us by taking up space that it doesn't really deserve. And you're talking through these different things and I was thinking I was like, well, first of all, I'm like I need to pick up the book because I want to be a better ally. I want to understand more and be able to have conversations, not just, you know, on the one-to-one, absolutely, but even further to be able to say, where are the places that we can change the language that, you know, where, where we, can we catch the microaggressions that happen mm-hmm. that we're not even aware of sometimes. Right. Um, So I love the fact that you mentioned that, you know, a lot of the straight allies have been uh, big supporters of the book because that was exactly where my mind went because it's my own, you know, personal perspective in this. Right. Um, So with that being said, um, please check out the show notes because we will have links to both of the books for you guys here uh, because obviously, you know, they are important reading to be able to get a better understanding no matter where you are in the process of what this is all about. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, even allies many times have had to go through some kind of deconstruction process to get to where they are. You know, like your background of coming is similar to my, my background. And we've had to go through this process of deconstructing what we were taught to believe. um, Because if your world was like mine, you were just kind of spoon fed this theology and never taught to 
question anything because to question what your pastor said or what your leader said was to question the authority of God, right? Mm -hmm. And so then you just accepted it all as gospel truth and never used basic critical thinking skills to measure up against what you were being taught. And so when you start to do that, it can feel very overwhelming for the, when you do it for the first time to try and dismantle what you've taught, been taught to believe and, and look at it and say, is this something that I really hold true or not? Mm -hmm. and, and why? And that can be a year long or a year, years long or even lifelong process, I think, um, for those of us that spent so many years in that, in that culture to dismantle all of that. I think, I think it takes a lifetime. And I think that that's a good place to be because we're, then we're always learning and we're always growing and we're always curious and we're not afraid to doubt or to wonder or to question the way we previously were, which I have was in the beginning very afraid of and now find very freeing and liberating. I, it's, I love that you said that. I've had the same um, kind of journey or the changing of, of one side of the spectrum to the other in that specifically of always being afraid to say, I don't know mm -hmm. to anything that was really related to faith or spirituality or what have you. I needed to have an answer. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the answer was just something that had been programmed into me. So it's just kind of that trigger response of, well, if A is true, then B is the answer. But then to be able to come all the way on the other side of that and say, I don't know. And I'm okay. really good with not knowing. And man, does this feel great. And just yeah. to be able to be in that moment. Yeah. And I think what I learned too was that, you know, my world was so black and white. There was right and there was wrong. Oh and everything goodness, yes. had an answer. There was no gray or in between. And so everything was so certain. And then I realized, well, if we have all the answers and everything is certain, what do you need faith for? Mm you have all the answers. What, where, where does faith play in? And I think where I live now requires so much more faith because I don't have all the answers and I don't have it all figured out and I don't know, uh, and, but I'm okay with that. And, and having the freedom to be able to doubt and to wonder and to question. Mm. Um, and, and that I think is where faith really plays a big part. I love that. I absolutely love that. So with this as kind of a, a, a sweeping of the paintbrush to indicate where it is that we're heading. Can you give us a little bit more detail about what your childhood was like? You know, when you think of the idea of recovering church girls, how does that apply to you? Does that resonate? Oh my gosh. I was the epitome of the Christian <laughs> family. You know, like I was the, everything you would dream of being the, the Christian um, family. Uh, my dad worked at Focus. Um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. I was homeschooled K through 12. I was in all the little homeschool co-op groups. Uh, we were very musical. We performed all the time. We had, you know, homeschool girls groups and all these things that we did, a part of Awana and very, um, very much, you know, Awana. Yep. <laughs> in Awana for years and um, always at church, always at Wednesday night group, always, you know, like that was just my world and my life. And so my, my world was very small. My bubble was very small because everybody looked and thought and believed exactly like we did, right? There was no room for diversity or questioning mm -hmm. or people that were other than us. Um, and if they were, your job was to convince them to become one of you, right? Yes. So there was always that, like, that ulterior motive lying underneath. Um, but my world was just very small. And yet, um, you know, I was taught to love God and to serve God. And I was very heavily steeped in the purity culture, mm. uh, which really affected me later on because 
I wasn't able to identify my sexual orientation earlier on. And I think that purity culture really played a big part in that, in hindering, um, in, in hindering that because I was taught that if you just save sex for marriage and you just wait, that someday your knight in shining armor is going to come in on a white horse and sweep you off your feet to happily ever after, right? You mean and that's so, not true? I don't understand. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> and that was, I truly believed that with all my heart. You know, I signed on the dotted line of this covenant at my 13th birthday and I put this ring on my finger and had this big ceremony in front of all of my family and friends. Mm. And I truly thought I was doing the right thing to not only be a good role model, but to also please God with my life. And I genuinely wanted to please God with my life, you know? Um, but because of that, I never dated at all. I just felt like, well, I just wait and you just wait mm. and the right person will just come along. So I didn't even have the exposure or the vocabulary because I was so cocooned in this Christian bubble and homeschooled and never even, even in sex, or I'm sorry, in, in co-ed groups very often, most of them were girls groups, right? Mm -hmm. So to even like figure all these out, things out and put the pieces together, um, I just didn't have the exposure or the vocabulary mm -hmm. to do that the way you would in a public school or, right. or you know, and um, so I just kept convincing myself that if I wait longer and I just keep serving God and I keep doing the right thing, eventually I'll get my reward. And um, meanwhile, I'm getting lonely and I'm getting mm -hmm. depressed and I'm getting, you know, because all these things I keep, I know I'm different somehow, but I can't figure out why. And that really just impacted a lot of my teen years. Um, because I just was always struggling with something, but I couldn't figure out what it was. And, and could so, I ask you too, you mentioned something that was almost like a, a, you know, side comment that I want to drill in on a little bit more. You mentioned this idea of signing the covenant as a role model, not to, you know, downplay your own personal connection to God and wanting to serve and wanting to, you know, do the right thing and get the gold stars. We talk a lot about gold stars around here, but I love that you mentioned specifically the idea of role model, because I think that that's another layer that was added to this influence of growing up in this environment, especially during our formative years, where there's something about that, the drive for conformity and the idea that the individual spiritual journey is not the thing that matters it's the collective actions it's the collective behavior and that pressure at young young age that was put on each of us to be mm -hmm. a role model because mm -hmm. you know it was up to us to make sure that the people around us didn't sin so part right. of that being the purity culture part right. of that being modesty or right. you know fill in the blank on whatever other mm -hmm. targeted behavior right. um, but i i think that's really interesting because that's something i don't see talked about very often in addressing the culture is the idea of, you know, we didn't really get to live a life for ourselves. There was always a series of other people that came before us. Right. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely right. Like the biggest motto in our home was that you were to be a blessing to other people, you mm -hmm. know? And my mom's like, well, e even on the smallest things, like going to visit family or relatives, she'd say, well, I want you to be on your best behavior and be a blessing to them. And, you know, mm -hmm. so nothing was ever about like you and just having a good time. It was always about helping other people and making them feel good and blessing them. And my family was seen as a role model in the community because everybody knew what my dad did. He was in a very prominent position at Focus. And so that was highly looked up to. 
And my mom was kind of a role model of sorts, even in the homeschooling community, helping other moms learn how to do it well. And, you know, and so there was that. And then there was, it just felt like there was all these, um, these standards that you had to live up to, to, to be that role model that you were expected to be mm-hmm. uh, in the way that you lived your life and the way, like you said, modesty and the way that you dress and the way that you, um, take criticism or whatever, I mean, even the little things, you know, the right. way that you respond to things, the way that you interact on things, the decisions that you make, uh, where you decide to work, what career you decide to have, like everything seems like it has kind of this underlying base. Um, it, w- it wasn't ever just because, oh, well, this is just really what I want. And this is, right. this is for me. And so I think that that is something that also is very hard to pull apart and dismantle mm. because it's so ingrained into you that everything you do is supposed to be for other people and to make life better for them. And at what point then do you draw that line and say, well, this is something that I just want to do for me, or right. this is something that makes me happy, or this is something that purely brings me pleasure. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. There doesn't have to be any measure of success behind it, you know? Right. And I think I struggle with that even now of like, you measure your productivity against everything, you know, as opposed to like, well, this just brings me pleasure. I just enjoy right. it. Right. You're supposed absolutely. to be productive all the time. You're supposed to always accomplish something. You're always supposed to, you know, like climb the next ladder, do the next thing. Mm-hmm. Busyness is your, is your, um, you know, your level of productivity is how you measure things. And that becomes so exhausting. Oh my goodness. And yeah. Then, well, I'm thinking of the verse about, you know, redeeming the time because the days are evil, like that kind of a thing of there's always this pressure of, you don't know when the world is going to end. So, right. so you got to go save the world now. by the weekend. Yeah. Right. Right. So, yeah, no, no pressure or anything, especially again, when you're talking about young kids that so are impressionable. Oh, so, and I really appreciate and identify with what you said earlier about the entire cocoon. Like it's, it's this entire world and yet it is such a small, small way of experiencing the world, mm-hmm. but we didn't have any frame of reference for anything different at that point. No. And because everybody, you know, I, it was, I wasn't exposed to people of color. I wasn't exposed to people with disabilities. I wasn't exposed to people with different religions or belief systems or, you know, um, certainly not LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. There was just uh, everything different was other or bad. And I wish I could have been exposed to all of those things from a young age and learned right. to know that diversity is beautiful and should be celebrated and more tall, you know, I just read an article recently about how uh, they're finding that church kids are um, less accepting than, mm. than what, you know, what we would call secular kids or the, of other people and of diversity. And how sad is that? Like it's doing the opposite effect of what they say they're trying to accomplish. Right. Um, and looking back at the original, like if the original idea is love then how did we get this far off the mark? And there's mm-hmm. a part of me like, I would love to be surprised by the findings in that article. And yet at the same time, there's this piece of me, it's kind of, kind of like, I mean, I physically rolled my eyes and shrugged my shoulders of like, yeah, I'm so not surprised. Mm-hmm. And yet then how do, we, how do we cause that shift so that that's not the norm? And those churches even are not the norm. When someone thinks about a church, Right. That that's not what they think of. And that's, that's a bigger, longer, hairier conversation. It is. Um, and I think it's going to take a long time to get there. I see 
churches that are slowly making those prog, you know, that progress. Mm -hmm. I, I have seen churches like um, that will take their kids on summer camp and they go to a different church or religion every day. So they go to a mosque, mm -hmm. they go to a temple, they go to a synagogue, they go to, and they learn about all those things. And I'm like, how wonderful is that? That they're yeah. learning that from their youth group at church and they're taking these field trips to learn about how other people believe in worship and why that's valuable. I think that's a beautiful thing. Or See, there's a part of me that's like holding my breath when you say that because I, I immediately go to, and then what are they saying when they come back to the church and they're behind closed doors? Like, are they, are they ripping apart the, <laughs> the Well, these are coming from affirming churches that are quite progressive. Okay, see so that, but I'm like, huh. Oh. Because then at that point, I feel like I can literally exhale on right. that idea because it sounds lovely and beautiful. But how right. sad is it that my first thought was, yeah, and they're and probably why this is wrong. other thing, you know? Right, right. Yeah, and, but these are coming from affirming churches that are in a very progressive space and genuinely open to learning. Hmm. And so I love that. Um, <sighs> and so, we need so much more <laughs> of it, you know, like yeah. places that are happening are so few. Um, but I've also seen, you know, them teach like our whole lives, which is like a sex ed program for kids in youth group and teach them about the different gender identities and sexual orientations and things from a very young age. And the kids that are growing up with that now who just realize that diversity is normal, mm. they're the ones that give me hope for the future, you know, because they're, they're not thinking twice between, well, a man marrying another man and a man marrying a woman, you know, mm -hmm. like they're, I had one friend recently tell me, she's like, I know my kids got Barbie dolls and I never know who's marrying who one day. And if it'll be two girls or a bo two boys or a boy and a girl. And, and they just don't even think about that. There's no filter mm. for them. And I think how beautiful is that? Yeah. That they don't have that filter that we grew up with and that they've learned from a young age to celebrate diversity and how much richer is that going to make our society as they grow older and bring that to the world. And so it gives me a lot of hope for the generations that are coming up underneath us, but I think it's going to take time mm -hmm. and um, a really big cultural shift to see it happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I apologize. I took us in a completely different direction. I was like, clearly that's not the childhood that you and I had. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's a childhood we wish we would have had. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Isn't that the truth? And for me, I found that becoming a parent and it was actually, there was a situation with my daughter choosing a bathing suit for a co-ed swimming party. Mm. And I heard myself, you know, like in, you think of the cartoons that have the words that come out and they try <laughs> and catch them back. Like that was my moment. Um, and I literally texted my best friends afterwards who also grew up in the same kind of culture. I was like, I, I can't believe I just said that. And I had yeah. to stop in the moment and say, hold on, let me think through this for a second disregard what I just said. Here's another way we can do this. I want you to be comfortable, whatever that feels like for you. And just to be able to catch it in that moment. But for me, that was a pretty good indication of like, yeah, I'm further in my de deconstruction than I think I am. <laughs> yeah. And that's always encouraging, right? I've catch myself, I've caught myself saying things too, where I'm like, I can't believe I just said that out loud. And like, right. <laughs> and checking, I'm like, I don't ever want to say that. And I don't want it to come across that way. And I don't want, that's not what I want to communicate. And, and so being able to recognize those things about, about our past and why they're harmful or why they're, you know, and, and being able to reframe that, I think is a beautiful thing. Mm, absolutely. So within your own uh, family, within your church, within the homeschooling, again, I identify in all of the above uh, for multiple different, you know, aspects of that. 
was there a moment in time that you felt the dissonance and it was just kind of, this is the line in the sand, or was it a gradual process that you kind of had to work through the different layers before you got to the point of saying, I don't think I believe everything I'm being told to believe. What was that process like for you? Well, I think there was a small piece of me that always thought a little bit outside the box from, from my family, from what I was taught to believe, you know, like that, that piece that always longed for more, that piece that always desired authenticity. I kind of always felt like I was living in a Barbie doll world mm. where everybody was happy all the time and wore these plastic masks, but never really said how they really felt or what mm. they were really going through. Everybody just had to be fine and happy all the time, you know? And so I had to play that game a lot of times and yet I wasn't fine or happy. And so I think that some of that caused me to, um, to wrestle a little bit earlier, but as far as my sexual orientation, I was so cocooned, like I said, between homeschooling and Christianity and purity culture that it wasn't until I was in my early twenties and fell in love with my female roommate that I had this, like, I call it my epiphany of horror where I was like, (laughs) God, something is horribly wrong. You know, like, Mm. what am I going to do with this? thing that I am discovering about myself that is the one thing I was never supposed to be Mm. and like if there was this hierarchy of sin you know like being gay was at the top of the ladder and so it was like this is the one thing I should never be and Mm. um, my parents actually ended up finding out about that girlfriend she outed me to them on her way out of town in the middle of the night which was great Mm. Um, and so then they showed up on my doorstep at six in the morning pounding on my door and um, kind of swept it under the rug as this big mistake that never should have happened. Like, we're just not going to talk about this anymore. It's going to go away. And um, don't ever tell anybody because if you do, it will ruin your reputation forever. Mm. And so that sent me even further into the closet of isolation and fear. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're taught to kind of hate this group of people, although we would never say that, right? (laughs) But that's kind of the underlying message that's received. Right. Um, Because we, we love the sinner and hate the sin, right? right. Yeah. We we love everybody and, and, um, we do everything. We speak the truth in love. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I haven't heard that in a long time. (laughs) It took me a minute to pull it out of the, the years back. Right. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so you're, you say that you don't hate them, but that's kind of the underlying message that you get. And so when you hate this group of people and then that group of people becomes you, Mm. then you start to hate yourself. Yeah. And so I spiraled downward, um, from depression to anxiety to, um, self-harm and cutting and suicidal ideations and just went, um, to a very dark place. And it got to the point where I was like, either I'm going to look this fear in the face and figure it out, or it's going to be the thing that kills me. Hmm. And so I didn't know how to even do that or where to start because it was such an overwhelming, terrifying thing. And I had no one to talk to or anywhere to go. Um, but I slowly just started kind of walking this deconstruction process in any way that I could figure out. And so for me, part of that was enrolling in therapy with a therapist that was licensed and knew what they were doing and um was not a christian therapist but an actual licensed therapist um that could help i appreciate me. the delineation between the two 
I think that's a very important thing to, to say, you know, that one is not like the other. No, because there's being, there's so much harm being done um, in the name of God by Christian therapists or conversion therapy, or, you know, like there's so much harm being done there and they they often fall under the same umbrella. Um, mm-hmm. And so finding a licensed therapist that is qualified to help you without um, their own prejudice or biases underlying um, this therapist helped me with both my faith and my sexuality and, and allowed me to bring both and, and mm. lay it all out. And that was super helpful for me. Um, cause it was at a time when we didn't have all the resources that we have today to, to help people navigate that. And so that was really an important part of my process and, um, and getting plugged into an affirming community was a huge part of my process. And, and being able to reconcile my faith with my sexuality. That was all like, you know, there were several years of, of working through all that, um, that I had to walk before I was finally able to accept who I was and mm-hmm. realize that I was gay and that God didn't hate me and I wasn't going to hell. And, but it took a lot of um, reprogramming, you know, and, and um, getting rid of that internalized homophobia, which I think, kind of like deconstruction is a forever process um, that never really ends. But but finding the confidence and the support um, to say that this is this is who I am and there's nothing wrong with that. And I can accept and embrace that and realize that God accepts and embraces me mm-hmm. and celebrates me and created me this way and that I get to display this beautiful piece of diversity to the world that they may not otherwise get to see. And so that was a journey, you know, that, that took years to get to. And I can't even say that it was all there when I finally decided to come out. Like, you know, like I was there, but I was still afraid and shaking in my boots. Sure. What this was going to mean for my life and how this was going to impact my family and my friends and my church and all these different pieces that were so important to me. Um, and so it was definitely a, a terrifying thing when I, I knew that I, was confident enough to, to have that peace that resonated inside of me. And yet that knowledge of, okay, now I'm going to have to tell other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a terrifying moment. And I sat my family down one day and I told them the journey that I had been on. And I was careful to tell them about the journey that I had taken with God, because I knew that was going to be their biggest fear was how this was going to impact my relationship with God and my salvation and my, you know, eternal destiny. Um, but they didn't hear any of that. I don't think they heard Mm. a word of any of that that I said. Um, they just kind of glazed over with this deer in the headlights look. And, um, when I finally got it out there and let it hang in the air that I was gay, um, it was by far the most vulnerable that I've ever felt. Mm. And my dad just looked at me and he said, I have nothing to say to you right now. And he got up and walked out the door Mm. and it was about three weeks before we spoke again. And that was, it felt like an eternity to me because we spoke, you know, my family was close. We spoke every day. We lived like, we all lived within like a mile of each other. Um, We were all very close. And so three weeks felt like an eternity. And when we talked again, I had kind of had this hope of like, well, maybe they will have had some time to think about how this has affected me and the process that I've had to take to get to this point. And, you know, Um, but it was just 10 times worse. Hmm. And they compared me to murderers and to pedophiles and to bestiality and said, uh, how dare you do this to our family? You're so selfish. Uh, We feel like you've died. Um, It it, it was just this 
you know, interrogation that went on that was just horrible. Uh, and at the end of it, my dad asked for the keys to their house back. And mm. so, I, I, I mean, I was, I was an adult. I was 27. I wasn't living at home, but it was still home to me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to have that revoked was just devastating. And things just continued to go downhill from there, you know. Like, it just was a slow spiral of uh, kind of this unraveling of the family unit. Uh, it did the very opposite of what focusing on your family is supposed to do, you know, um, it, it tore my family apart. And so it, sometimes that was through hurtful words and sometimes that was through passive aggressive behavior. Um, but slowly I was just pushed further and further to the outside to where I knew that I no longer belonged. Hmm. And so that became um, a time where the affirming community that I had found a um, up in Denver and was a part of became critical, you know, and so I pretty quickly picked up and moved to Denver to be closer to that um, because I was in a very dark place and didn't know if I was going to make it. And so to me, being closer to that um, supportive community was uh, really one of the main things that I think saved my life during that time uh, when yeah, I was just totally struggling to get from one day to the next. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was over time that, you know, that doesn't just stop overnight. Obviously it it goes over time. And about a year later is when I met um, Claire who became my wife. So we held intention, you know, I was out, I had been out about a year when we met. So it was this odd tension of like, um, you know, losing everything I had ever known. Mm -hmm. Cause it wasn't just my parents. It was all of my extended family, the majority of my friends, the home church that I'd been a part of for 14 years and really the only hometown that I'd ever known because I had grown up in Colorado Springs all my life, you know? Um, So losing all of that and really having to start fresh with nothing Mm. and um, yet feeling like I was finding myself for the first time and um, like I was finding peace and joy for the first time. I was coming alive for the first time. Um, You know, I was falling in love for really the first time and yet I couldn't share that with my family. Mm. And yet, you know, so it was like this teeter-totter back and forth of, of grief and loss and yet joy and, um, and celebration. And it was a very difficult balance to walk, you know. For those well, it sounds so bittersweet is the word it that was. keeps coming to mind of just there's so much loss. And then there's also so much joy and hope and all the things that we want for our kids and each other and humanity, like all of the good things that we want people to be able to experience in the face of so much loss and heartache. Right. Right. And I I think it was the things I had been searching for for years and years, even before I knew I was gay, you know, the, the loneliness and isolation and suffocation that I felt Mm -hmm. by not being able to be who I was. And being able to find people that were rich and authentic and deep for the first time in my life, you know, Mm. and how freeing that was. And yet I was losing all these other things. And so it was just, um, a very bittersweet teeter totter, um, roller coaster of emotions that we went through for quite a while. And, um, you know, dating led to getting engaged, led to getting married and, um, all during that time, my family and I were separating further and further and further. Mm. And, um, they didn't want to meet Clara. They didn't want to have anything to do with her. And um, so when it came down to it, I had no family at my wedding. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you can never get back, you know, like you can never 
undo that or redo that or replace that. And um, I was grateful enough and lucky enough to have some people that stood in where my family should have been, Mm. um, which certainly helps. And I'm certainly very grateful for that, Um, but it doesn't replace your family or or the fact that they should have been there. And um, so those are things that, you know, that I've had to live with. And um, it was about three months after we got married that I think somehow in my parents' mind that getting married was, was, the end for them you know like mm-hmm. as long as I wasn't married I think there was still hope in their mind that I would change um and then when I got married I think that kind of solidified things for them and so then they just cut me off completely and we haven't spoken mm-hmm. since so it's been about five years um since I've had any contact with my family <sighs> and I'm so that's so sorry you had to go through that yeah I mean it just you know there's been continual cycles of grief and loss that you have to unpack and go through. Yeah, that's a lot to navigate and to do so when your faith and spirituality and identity and sexual orientation, when that's all kind of commingled and Mm -hmm. tangled together Mm -hmm. to be able to separate one from the other and to navigate each of those journeys, but all at the same time, mm-hmm. that's, that's a lot. lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't ever go back, mm-hmm. you know, like I wouldn't change it. Um, do I wish things were different or had turned out different? Of course. But um but I would never go back. I, I feel like I came alive the day that I came out yeah. and my family has missed the happiest years of my life. Mm. You know, I've never felt more alive. I've never felt more free. I've never felt more at peace or at home in my own skin. Um, it just feels so right. Mm. Um, so I would never go back to where I felt so suffocated all the time, you know, yeah. um, trying to, trying to navigate that world. Um, even though there's been a lot of hard things about it. Um, it still has been so rich and so rewarding in so many ways um, that I tell people, you know, even if it costs you something, it still is worth it to mm. be authentic to who you are. Um, yeah. There's, you, you can't, nothing will replace that. You right. know, you can't replace that authentic being true to the core of who you are. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I think at the end of the day, I was just thinking about this the other day as I was journaling, uh, as I mentioned, you know, working on the book for Recovering Church Girls, and I'm hitting so many different layers for things within the construct and the context of church culture. Like, I'm not even getting into the doctrine and the dogma or any of the theology stuff. It's more just about all of those other things that, frankly, were probably never supposed to be the way that the message was given anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but just in this idea of, you know, really what is the meaning of life you know that existential foundational question and just kind of coming back to this idea of love and joy Mm -hmm. and the idea of you know being who we are and being loved for that and Mm -hmm. showing love giving love receiving love in all ways and experiencing the joy of that and all that we get to you know, have in this, in this life and whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. Is that a Pollyanna viewpoint? Yeah. But that's because that's what I choose. It's what I choose to focus on in the sense of there's so much heartache and there's so Mm -hmm. much suffering. It can 
prove a purpose. It can serve the the bigger good and the deeper growth process. But I think that sometimes, especially in Christian circles, it's far too easy to say that, you know, well, struggle is just the way that, that we do things. And, you know, we elevate the status of martyrdom mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. such an extreme Absolutely. that we think that any level of suffering means that we're being really good Christians. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. I think that's totally jacked up. Yeah. I don't think that's at all what God designed. I don't think so either. And, you know, how do we unpack all of that and choose to live differently? Mm -hmm. So there's so much in what you're telling me about just how much joy and peace and freedom you're experiencing now that just like makes my heart burst. Yeah, I think the idea that we're supposed to, if we're not suffering, we're not doing enough to serve God. Mm. Oh, man. You know, like that is not the way that we're supposed to be. And it's taken me years to kind of, realize a lot of that but I felt like I was always suffering so then you feel like you're well you must be doing the right thing pleasing God because you're always in turmoil but we're Mm -hmm. not always supposed to be in turmoil like that's the point of life we should not always be in such devastation and turmoil and angst all the time Um, I think we should be happy and we should be full of joy and we should be full of peace and the fruit of the spirit Mm. is what you know and I tell that's what I tell people in terms of coming out I'm like if the fruit you are seeing in your life is anger and depression and anxiety, that that is not good fruit. Mm. <laughs> you know, like the fruit of staying in the closet is killing you. Right. You come out so you can have joy and peace and life and fullness and happiness. And um, I think that is the way that we're meant to live. And mm. the message so often gets skewed in the process. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Well, I was thinking as you were talking about this idea of, you know, we're told that when we're suffering, we're, we're doing good for God. I was literally told that like, not just, you know, so much of of what we've experienced has been like implicit and, you know, we've, we've kind of, uh, that's what I'm looking for, like absorbed things within the culture, but I'm like that one that was explicitly stated from multiple stages, Yes, multiple podiums, multiple small groups. Yes. Yep. Yeah it was ingrained into us that that was how you were supposed to be, to be a good Christian. Mm-hmm. Ah, so many layers. <laughs> yes. So many layers. Amber, this has been an amazing conversation and I'm so grateful for you taking not only the time to do this, but just, you know, really sharing the whole thing from not only what you've been able to grow in this process and to be able to help navigate this really treacherous journey for other people, but then also for so many different people across all walks of saying we can do better. Like this is, there's more to the life that we have in front of us and how we can get to that place of peace and joy. Yeah, there's going to be more suffering and there's going to be some heartache, but it is possible. But thank you is, for that. It is worth it. Yeah. It is worth it to come to the other side mm. and to, to find that peace and that joy. There's nothing that compares to that. So uh, I still tell people, even if it costs you something, mm. it's still worth it. You're still worth it. You're still worth fighting for. Hmm. Okay. So hold on a second. Cause that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> well, yeah, I, <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm like, I know, you know, this is that. Hmm. 
I always have this happen when we get into the idea of like, we're going to wrap up and we're going to go do the bonus section. I'm like, but if this is too good, everybody <laughs> needs to hear this. So I'm going to bend the rules for a second because I, I think that the idea of worthiness is such a prevalent thing that comes into play. The way that you just said that last sentence was that you are worthy of the effort and it might cost you something, but you're still worth it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even this idea of like this external thing that you are going to experience is worth it. It's you're worth it. Mm -hmm. And that changes everything. Yeah. Yeah. Even when I tell people, because I often get questions around how to set boundaries, you know, with, with family or with friends or, you know, around theology or around holidays. And, and I'm like, it's hard to do that. It's nobody likes to set boundaries. Boundaries are hard. Nobody likes to have to do that, but it's, you're still worth it. You're still worth fighting for. You're still worth setting that boundary so that you have self-dignity and self-respect and your partner has the dignity and self-respect. And, um, it, it may not be easy or pretty and maybe neither of you really get what you want. You know, like my dad would say, well, Amber, you're always welcome to come home for the holidays, but Clara will never be welcome under our roof. Mm. And I said, well, then I'm not coming, you know, because she's an extension of me. You would never go somewhere for the holidays where mom isn't welcome. Right. And leave her home alone for Christmas, you know, like that's unacceptable. And so it's, you know, but in reality, then what happened was we never spent another holiday together again. Mm. So neither of us got what we wanted, which was to spend holiday together as a family, but it's not about winning and losing. It's about Mm self-respect and worth. And so even though it cost me that, it was still worth it to me because I had my own self-worth and dignity intact. And so I encourage people in that way to, you know, and I'm so in love with the work of Brene Brown. I mean, her ideas around worthiness and vulnerability and shame and belonging and courage and have been so revolutionary for me Mm. and my work. And so I point people to that as often as possible too, because I think um, it's, so, um, it, we can relate to it so much coming mm-hmm. from the, you know, the, the conservative Christian background and we can do so much work around unpacking our own shame triggers and our own, um, in our own things around worthiness and belonging and love. And, and I think she just does a brilliant job of, of helping us unpack those things. Absolutely. In the, the gifts of imperfection, I think is one of my favorites. Yes. I was actually just going to mention that. <laughs> so yeah, yeah I, I love that you mentioned that because I think that what I'm seeing in the current conversation is that we're having this on a mainstream platform, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is kind of amazing considering those of us that grew up pretty much sequestered and you know we're told that all the the secular things were bad and if the song didn't mention Jesus at least three times then it was a bad song and you can't listen to it you know to think that now we're in a place within you know just a couple decades not that it's been easy but we're here and again not that we're done we've got so much more work to do And yet, how cool is it that on a mainstream platform, in regular day-to-day conversation, we can have things that are so much more meaningful and impactful. We can embrace and seek out diversity, even Mm -hmm. if we were denied it growing up as a kid. And I don't think that, you know, I know at least my family... I think in some ways they they didn't even know what they were doing Mm -hmm. in the sense of no one saw the 
forecasted outcome right. of living in an all white little bubble. Right. And so, you know, on one hand, it's just kind of like, I don't think anybody walked into that situation with malintent. Right. And at the same time, when we know better, we do better. Right. So how can we change the conversation now and be intentional mm -hmm. about intersectionality and representation and having sometimes really hard and awkward conversations, mm -hmm. but with the desire of understanding our own hidden biases and finding them and evaluating and choosing differently. Yeah, absolutely. And always having an open mind and open heart to learn and to grow and to, mm. to like you said, do better. When you know better, you do better. So. Oh, I love this. Well, I will be picking up your book. I will be putting the link in the show notes and I hope that many others do so as well. And I'm just so grateful to be able to have this conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And for you guys who are listening, if this resonates with you, I just ask that you share the conversation with someone else that's in your world so that you guys can talk about it even more. Because that's really what this is all about. It's the conversations. It's the connections. It's opening up our hearts to each other and our stories. So again, thank you so much, Amber. I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye.